Job chapter 40. I'm glad to be able to speak today. I was concerned <coughs> about losing my voice. I sort of did up at Orcus. After a series of speeches on the part of Job and his friends, the Lord speaks to Job out of the storm. Not because he has been forced to, not because Job called him out but I believe out of concern for his servant Job. In the two speeches or discourses that God gives, it's really amazing that God ignores Job's complaints. He does not respond to Job's claim of innocence. He does not correct Job for some wrongdoing. 
as I think the friends would have expected. Instead, the Lord addresses Job as a teacher would a student, but not dealing with the subject matter I think that Job wanted to be educated about, but rather seeking to open up new avenues of understanding. And so what we find in these chapters, from chapters 38 through 41, is not what we would expect to find. In the first speech that we've studied, we see that the Lord seeks to convince Job of two things. That first of all, that he and he alone created the world in wisdom, and that he and he alone governs the world in wisdom with justice and compassion. To review a bit, but also to cover some things, some gaps in our study of this first speech. The first thing that God really seeks to impress on Job is that he created the world according to plan. He laid the foundation according to the blueprint. He brought forth the seas, establishing the boundaries. And there's a passage that we sort of went over rather quickly in chapter 38, in which God says, that he calls forth the sun. He did on that first uh, day of creation, but he calls forth the sun every day and he sends the wicked into hiding. It is to enlighten the earth and to send the wicked into hiding. And, you know, in the face of it, this really doesn't seem to make sense because when God created the world, at least there were no human beings, there were no sinners as such. But I think the point is this, that justice is at the center of what God does in creating the world. This is important because Job has accused God of being unjust. And so God says, listen, when I created the world, I created it in wisdom, in justice, and I govern with compassion. There's another point, I think, in here, and it is that the evildoers are subject to God's authority as well. As with the sea, where he says you can go this far and no farther, So with those who are evildoers, God restricts their activity. Secondly, there is no area or region of creation beyond God's governing authority. He talks about the recesses of the deep, the gates of death, the vast expanses of the earth, the storehouses of snow and hail, the places of light and darkness, the path of the thunderstorm. There is no part of creation that God does not govern. That, I think, is secondary to a point that we did not make as we were going through this, and that is that God manages the various forces in the world for the benefit of all creation and not simply mankind. So if you look, for example, in chapter 38, verses 25 through 27, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land Where no man lives, a desert with no one in it, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. The implication is if Job had been in charge or any of us had been in charge, we would not waste such precious rain on a desert where no one lives. Why why have it rain out there? There's nobody out there. Rather, we should have the rain come and uh, replenish the earth, clean the air where humanity lives. Let's preserve the precious rain for cultivated land and not waste it on the barren areas. And then there's the matter of storms and hail and frost. 
things that can cause discomfort and more to human beings. Why do we need these things? And I think God is saying there's more to the world than human beings. If we were in charge, we would not have hail. We would not have storms. We would cause it to rain on the places where we need it to rain. But God governs not simply for our benefit, but for the benefit of all creation. To put it another way, the world does not revolve around us. Does not revolve around mankind. And I think this may be one of the reasons why in this first speech, God speaks of the heights and depths and vastness of creation of the amazing phenomena and the, and the animals that fill it, pointing to the complexity of his work as creator and as sustainer of reality. And I think without being cruel, Job is being told that God has more to think about than his problems. They are big problems to Job, but he is a small part of all of God's creation and God governs his entire creation. The third thing that we saw is that God is the God of wild animals. And I think this is something that we need to think about a bit more. That even on the sixth day of creation, when the Lord created the living creatures of the land, including us, that some of those that God created were designated wild animals. Implying, I think rather strongly, that even in a perfect world, there are those animals which are not tamed or domesticated by humans and that there is to be territory designated for their continued existence. In a perfect world, which God created with Adam and Eve, there were wild animals. I think as we think of subduing the earth, we think if, in fact, we would do the work that God had commanded, there would be no more wild animals. And I, I think that's simply not the case. An imbalance in God's creation tends to go in one of several directions. Either the land that is needed by wild animals is taken up by humans as we grow in number. Or the land that has been assigned uh, to humans is invaded by wild animals. This you find in the Old Testament as a sign of God's judgment, where God had basically said, this is where the wild animals stay. This is where humans live, the cities, the towns the roads, and suddenly you find lions roaming in the streets. One direction could be that there is ecological disaster on every side. After all, when there is a famine, as we read about famines in the Old Testament, they don't merely affect human beings. They affect the wild animals as well. And in chapter 30, beginning at the end of 38, but in chapter 39, God describes beautifully how he cares for the wild animals of creation. He talks of the lion, the hunter, the raven, scavenger, the mountain goat and deer, the wild donkey that laughs at the people in town, the wild ox, the ostrich, the foolish ostrich, a horse, the fearless and brave horse that goes into battle, the hawk. The eagle. And we find that God provides them with food. From the hunting lion to the scavenging raven, he provides for them and their young. We read that God watches over the pregnancies of wild goats, uh, the mountain goats and the deer. And that God gives the wild donkey and the wild ox such a love for freedom, 
so much that they refuse to give in. They refuse to be domesticated. They refuse to go live with human beings where they could have food supplied regularly. They choose rather to live on their own. And on it goes. And by the way, this past week, as we were in Orcas, we're all watching over Mandy's pregnancy and counting the days and watching the baby kick. And at one point while we were eating, the baby had the hiccups. And we're all very careful about that. But who cares about wild animals? God does. He takes care of them. He counts the months of their pregnancies, the days. He knows when it is time for them to deliver. And he is, if you wish, their midwife when they do give birth. We found last week that God gives within each animal uh, sort of complementary attributes, gifts and flaws, graces and faults, charms and handicaps. So much so that at the end of it all, a human being might be tempted to say, this is not the way that I would have done it. This is not the creation I would have made. And stop and think about it. If you were going to create the world, if God would call you and say, I want you to recreate the world, would you create wild animals? Would we not have all domesticated animals that can be used uh, in farms for production, for transportation, for pets? I think this is not the way we would have done it. And this has been Job's contention all along. As he has been suffering these things, he's been saying, there's something wrong with this picture. This is not the way I would have done it. And now that God speaks to him, God says, look at creation. All of these strange animals. And our conclusion is what Job's conclusion was earlier. This is not the way that we would have done it. Today we come to a short passage, the first five verses of chapter 40, in which God invites Job to respond and Job, in fact, does respond. First of all, the invitation to response. Look, if you would, at verses 1 and 2 of Job chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. We find at the end of the discourse what we found at the beginning of the discourse. A question and a command. This is something we've talked about, but just to remind you and to review a bit. We have talked about and noted well that in here and throughout Scripture, that when God asks questions, it is usually done in grace. He has no need to ask anyone for any information whatsoever. God knows all things. So when the all-knowing asks questions, it is not so that he can find out. He already knows. It is, in fact, to give us a chance to respond. We find this to be the, very, the case from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned and the Lord came down to the garden, the two were hiding among the trees. And what does God say? Where are you? He knows where they are. He gives them a chance to respond. And Adam does respond. Uh, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And how does God respond? Again, with a question. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? When Adam responds, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What does God do? Again, he asks a question. What is this you have done? In every case, God knew 
the answer, but he gives the guilty party a chance to answer, to own up to what he or she has done. In our text here in Job 40, does not God know who contends with the Almighty to correct him? He's addressing Job. He's speaking to Job out of the storm. He's not speaking to the friends. He's speaking to Job. So he knows exactly. Uh, as one translation has it, the fault finder who finds fault with God. Who is this fault finder who finds fault with me? He knows who it is. And he gives Job a chance to own up to it. By the way, I mentioned this, I think, several weeks ago, but did you notice that in chapters 38 and 39, as God describes that he, the fact that he created the world, he governs the world, that most of what we find there are questions. So, for example, just look at the beginning of chapter 39. Instead of saying, I know when the mountain goats give birth, God asked Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? And so on throughout the first speech. Part of it is a cultural issue with us. But as we make the application, and it's something we've discussed before, the use of questions are far more effective in drawing people out. It causes them to think. Declarations or statements cause people to put up barriers. You've made a statement, and either they respond with the statement or they don't answer at all. They walk away. A question is quite different. It's much more subversive and insidious. It is something to which they respond, but first they have to think before they respond. When we went through Pilgrim's Progress in Sunday school uh, some years ago, we noted that the character evangelist, who is an evangelist, that most of the lines he has given in the story until the very end of the book are all questions. Evangelist, when he speaks to Pilgrim, does not make declarations. Rather, he asks him questions. And in the church today, which I think claims to know more than it does, I think we are too fond of telling people what's what. I think we would do better to ask questions. And so God, who knows that this is Job who's caused this whole thing, asks, who is this? And then he commands him, let him who accuses God answer him. And so Job does in verses 3, 4, and 5. Look if. Look along, if you would, as I read. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. I think what should strike us right off the bat is how little Job has to say. In comparison with the, the speeches he has given earlier, he has so little to say. I think on some level, overwhelmed by God's majesty, he is aware of his own smallness. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? And Job concedes that he is in no position to answer God. Parenthetically, in some ways, this was almost what Job was afraid of. He mentioned it in chapter 9 as he was answering Bildad. He asked the question, how can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? In other words, if I'm face to face with God, I just won't have the words to speak. But there, I think Job was afraid he would be overwhelmed by God's power, that God would just do a power trip on him and just overwhelm him and, and Job would be powerless to answer. 
Here it's something different. God has not overwhelmed him with power. Rather, it is the power of his words. In many ways, all that Job can do is put his hand over his mouth. He's dumbfounded. How can he answer what God has said? But all is not well. I don't know if you caught it, but Job has not retracted. He has not backed off of his earlier position. He said, I spoke once, twice, but I will say no more. In other words, Job is standing behind his uh, statements, his claims of innocence. He won't add anything, but he's standing by it. I've said what I've said. I'm not going to add anything to it. I stand by what I say, but I'm not going to add anything to what I said. One author puts it that his reply is almost totally lacking in graciousness. Now, he admits that he is a creature. He's small. He is ignorant, particularly in terms of God's power and God's freedom and the things that God has created. But the admission seems somewhat reluctant. Job is bowed a little, but he's still sort of standing by what he said. I'm innocent, and what has happened to me is unfair. And for this reason, and there are others, I'm sure, God will speak again. And the Lord willing, we will look at this next week as God gives his second speech to Job. But I would tell you that the second speech is necessary because after the first one, Job is still not repentant. He still has not humbled himself, even in the face of God's majesty. And so the Lord will speak again in chapters 40 and 41. Just to wrap this up, I think we need to remember as we leave today that God created the world and he governs it in wisdom and justice and compassion. And not simply in our lives, because after all, that's what we're generally interested in, but his entire creation. Not just humanity, of which we are a part, those made in God's image, but the wild goats who live on the mountains. I remember uh, several years ago, Guy and I went to the San Diego Zoo. And we were toward the end of the day. We saw a mountain goat and we had gone on the tour. And, and so we were told that these mountain goats are able to put all four feet together and stand on a quarter. That's basically all the territory they take when they're standing up there. And sure enough, I looked up at a goat. And probably for 15 minutes, that goat just stared at me, which means I stared at him as well. So it's just amazed at these creatures that God has made. But what, what, of what benefit are they to us? It's not all about us. The bottom line is it is not all about us. The world does not revolve around us, either as individuals, as communities, or as humankind. And I think we should remember that God does not do things the way that we would. He just does not. There are times when things go the way that we think they should, and we're, we're quick to show our appreciation. Good job there. Thank the Lord for the way things turned out. But far too often things don't go the way we think they should. And today, as we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
I think we should remember that that whole story was not the way we would have done things. To send his son a humble birth, to live a humble life, and then to die a criminal's death. It's not the way we would have done it. But God knows best. And the call of God in this speech, and Job has begun to hear it, but he has not yet completely accepted it, is to humble ourselves before God and to acknowledge him as the God of the universe. And on this day, we remember him as the God who sent his only son to give his life for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are amazed when we look at the beauty of your creation, the complexity of it, the variety we find in it. And yet at the same time, we would confess that this is not the way we would do things. We also rejoice in the glory and the wonder of your grace and your salvation that you have provided so freely. But we would confess again that this is probably not the way that we would have done it. May we accept your call to humility, to repentance, to acknowledge you for who you are, and to know that you create, you govern, you rule with wisdom, with justice, and with compassion. We ask for strength when things do not go as we think they should or as we want them to go. There's a part of us that would like to know the reason why, but as we see in the case of Job, you don't explain why. You simply explain that you rule justly. We ask for your strength and your grace in difficult times. And in good times as well. Today we remember the death of your son. A cruel death, a painful death, a lonely death. Not the way we would have chosen. But in your grace, you provided life and salvation for us through his sacrifice. May we have an appreciation for that today as we remember his death once more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Saldi.
this past week at Orcus, one of the talks we had, we talked about the place of eating, a biblical view of eating. We mentioned that it should be striking to us that one of the methods that God has chosen for us to remember the death of his son is by eating and drinking. And we do this together in the Lord's Supper. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.